I think that we have a lot of pressure to your point about ego. I just think there's a lot of pressure for founders to want to and have to go all the way. And I think it's a really important moment, several moments, right? Series of moments to step back and wonder, is this the right thing? And is my title the right title? Does it reflect the things that I want to do? You're listening to the Elevate Podcast, and I'm your host, Robert Glazer. Join me as I talk to world-class performers about how they build their capacity and reach greater heights in leadership, business, and life, and how you can do the same. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. Our quote for today is from Guy Kawasaki, ideas are easy, implementation is hard. My guest today, Alyssa Cohn, helps founders turn their ideas into thriving companies. She was named the number one startup coach in the world by Thinkers50 and has coached startup founders from companies such as Venmo, DraftKings, and Mack Weldon. She's also an investor, strategy consultant, and coach to C-suite executives at clients such as Microsoft, Google, and IBM. And she is the first-time author, brand new book, From Startup to Grown Up, which publishes the day this episode airs. Alyssa, welcome. Excited to have you join us on the Elevate podcast. Thank you, Bob. I'm so excited to be here. So you spent a lot of your career coaching others, coach the stars, but uh, I'm sure that wasn't your first job. So what did what did you major in? Uh, and then what was your sort of first job out, out of school? Ah, I majored in journalism. I actually, I wanted to major in English, but my parents would have none of that. And they wanted me to get more of a trade thing. So I majored in journalism. And my first job out of college was I worked at EF Foundation in Boston, oh, Cambridge, yeah. actually. Uh, it was a nonprofit that was um, helped exchange students come to the U.S. and send exchange students from the U.S. to other countries. I have a good friend on my soccer team uh, that works at that company. So oh. yeah, it's been a, it's like a multi generational business, right? Yes, exactly right. Yep. And then what did you do from there? Well, so there, you know, is again EF education, and I realized I actually liked education, and so I moved um, into the world of education more strongly. I was the chief of staff to the provost at Northeastern University. And I did that for a couple of years before I sort of found my calling. And how did you find your calling? Well, in the provost's office, it was an amazing experience. And I saw so many different things. And one thing we did was strategic planning. So I, I was the chair of the Dean's Council. And we brought in this facilitator to do strategic planning. And she was so inspiring. And she was like, I remember specifically, we were doing this meeting and somebody was getting very upset and like yelling at her and screaming at her. And at the end of her screaming at this facilitator, she said, Jane, I hear you saying two things. I hear you saying that we've made a lot of mistakes. And I hear that you're saying that you're not feeling included. So I want you to know we have made mistakes and we will continue making mistakes and we will fix them as we go. And we very much want you to be included in this process. And I was like, I didn't hear her say that. I heard her screaming at you. So I was so amazed by that, that like someone could really you know, hold a room like that and turn this gobbledygook into something very constructive. That was really a moment of truth for me. And, and I assume the person reacted positively to that? Yeah. Well, the, the screaming stopped and we then had a very productive meeting. So yes. So I think I also read you worked as a CFO and a startup yes. early in your career. Um, so how big did that company get and what did you learn? Was that a functional or dysfunctional startup experience? <laughs> well, I think all experiences are, are good for the soul, right? They move in you the forward. long run. Right, exactly. <laughs> so actually, just to give you a little more background, after I left 
I went off to business school to focus on people and organizations. And I got all turned around and I ended up, I was at Cornell and at Cornell, there was a lot of focus on finance and strategy. So I focused on finance and strategy and accounting. We actually had this fantastic accounting faculty at Cornell. And so I then exited into PricewaterhouseCoopers again in Boston. And I was on like the fast track to partner program. And so I did a whole bunch of things at PwC, including getting my CPA. And then I realized this is not it. This is not my thing. So I had to kind of go figure out what was my thing. And that's when I found coaching, but I also found the startup world. So this was my second startup I was hired into. And when the CEO came to Boston to kind of like rubber stamp my hiring, he saw like this little bitty thing on my resume uh, that I was a CPA. He said, you're a CPA. I said, yeah. He said, do you want to come to California and be our CFO? I said, no, not really. And he said, we have a rent a CFO and she's robbing us blind. I need you to come to California and sort that all out. And then we can you know, move you back to Boston. So I was like, okay, I guess that's what I'm going to do. So that's what I did. And I, was, I did that. I was a CFO of that company for about six or seven months until I did sort it all out, which was a huge learning experience, just like figuring out how do you come in the middle of that thing? And I had never been a CFO before. And then I came back to Boston and I was the GM of the Boston office. And the truth is that that and the other startup I worked in taught me a lot about startups, what it takes to do execution, what it takes to bring people together, and certainly about product market fit. And so what is it like in that role? Were you providing coaching or what really like drove that spark for you? Did you have a coach? Or this probably didn't exist at that point. No, they did. They did okay. exist. Yeah. Yeah. When I was at PwC, my moment of truth was that I woke up one morning and I thought, I hope I get the flu so I don't have to go to work tomorrow. Yeah. It was a Sunday. And I was rushed to the emergency room 18 hours later with the flu. And I thought, oh wow, this is really this yeah. is really provocative. Like, this is really powerful. That could be a sign. That's gonna be a sign, exactly. And I thought you gotta listen to your body here, you gotta listen to the sign. So then I was like very upset, like, well, what am I gonna do? Because my life was all set. Five years to partner, I know what I'm doing, my life was all set. And so I had to really come to terms with this is not it. So I just think, what was it? And in the middle of all this, you know, I began to the process of thinking about how I'm gonna quit PwC, which was a great firm, and they were great to me as I was leaving. But I had to figure out what I was going to do next. And I went to this conference called Body and Soul. And my, my boyfriend, who was a yogi guy, dragged me there. And we volunteered. And at the end of the volunteer orientation, they said, Cheryl Richardson is going to now speak to the volunteers. And I was like, who is that? And can I leave? Is this mandatory? Do I have to stay for this? And she is this coach. I found out. And she was amazing. And she was so dynamic and so motivational. I thought, oh, wow, what is that? And the very next day I saw her do live coaching in front of 500 people. She said, who wants to stand up right now and get live coaching? And I thought, oh, wow, what's going to happen? Someone stood up. She live coached that person for 20 minutes. And I thought, oh my gosh, I could never do that. But I also thought, oh, I could do that. And that's how I figured it out. And I took coach, like violence played and I took coach training and I did, I hired my own coach and then I coached all my friends and that's how I kind of got the reps in. Was it life or business? At the early days, it was life, but I've always been interested in people in a career context. I've always been interested in, people always came to me for advice for networking and for what they should do with their careers. And I really think that the way you impact people is through their business life because we spend so much time at work and 
when you can also make a difference with yourself at work, you can impact people around you. I always had an interest in the business world, but I would say originally it was sort of life coaching. So are you hired today? Are you hired by the company because they think someone needs coaching? Or are you hired by the individual who wants to do better? Both. Certainly when the CEO hires me, it's because he or she has met me and they kind of realize like they want some of that or they realize... I know. What are you, what are you going to say? I was going to say, when the board hires you, it's different. Yeah. yeah <laughs> with the board, well, it has happened several times where the board has said, here's Alyssa, your new coach, which doesn't yeah. work out that well. That's not a good <laughs> Actually, yeah. No. But sometimes the board will say to me and to them, we, to them, you, we think you could benefit from coaching and we've known Alyssa and you know she might be someone for you to talk to. And that is a much better sell. Yeah. And, and you know, what's interesting that I found and, you know, look, you've coached some of the best executives and companies and, and, and the people that want to be coached are already good. They want to be better. The people yes. that fundamentally don't want to be coached think they know everything. It, it, it is almost this like opposite scenario. That's true. Yeah. Actually, the people who want the coaching the most kind of need the least coaching. Yeah. And they're also, they're <laughs> the ones who are the most open for sure. And the most humble. All right. So I want to dig into your your new book. You waved me the cover. It's fun to get it from startup to grown up. Yeah. What motivated you to write the book now? And and who's the target audience? Is it are you warning people about the road ahead or is it someone right at that awkward teenage business teenage years? Right. Well, I think both can benefit from it. You know, I was motivated to write the book because I would go into scenarios, but go into startups and other companies. And I would say things like, so how often do you meet with your leadership team? And they would say, what's a leadership team? Or I would say, well, have you delegated this thing to somebody? What's and they delegation? Would, right, exactly. <laughs> well, it was be more like, I tried to do that. Didn't work. I told them what to do. They didn't do it. And so I kind of realized, oh, there are avoidable mistakes that I see all the time that I could solve. And I regularly thought like, I wish I had a book that I could hand you to kind of show you the road ahead and help you avoid preventable mistakes. And so I realized it was not such a book. And so I wrote that book and I'm very happy that I feel like now it, it sort of shines a light on, to your point, the road ahead and what to do about it. So when does a startup founder, I mean, I guess in your experience, we see the Zuckerbergs, we see like, to me, it's always a little bit like the LeBron James or the Michael Jordan, right? We celebrate the the once a decade, but but... For most people in companies, is it going to be one person or is it more likely or not going to be different people along that company journey? What do you mean different people? CEO, like that a CEO oh. can go from startup to public. Right. It's sort of the age old question. So first of all, in my book, what I say is, first of all, you have to really step back and reflect and assess, do you want to be the CEO? At multiple stages, right? Totally. Do you want the job is probably a good first question. That's exactly. Fair. In fact, I talked to, um, you know, on my new podcast called From Startup to Grown Up, I just talked to Greg Gallant, who is the CEO and founder of Muckrack. And he said to me, you know... It's like it shouldn't even be the same title. Like your CEO on day one and your CEO on day 10, and they're so different. Oh, sorry, year 10. Yeah. And they're so different that they shouldn't even be called the same title. So, to your point, you know, sort of stepping back at a regular cadence and asking, is this the job I want? And then what does it require? So, what it requires is your ability to adapt and grow very quickly, to change your leadership style very quickly. 
to change your communication style very quickly. And so if you want to do that, which is very uncomfortable and often founders like don't want to do that because they're focused on the product and they find it kind of boring to be communicating all the time. But if you genuinely want to do that, then yes, I know for sure that anybody who has had enough you know, kind of get up and go to found a company has enough get up and go to learn how to be the CEO. But I think it's really the desire that the desire and the willingness the to true change. desire versus the ego aspect, right? Exactly. There's a lot of that ego stuff. I actually talked to a founder last year and he told me I fi- after like, it's like he's a serial startup founder for startups, I think. And he said, after the third, I finally got that my sweet spot is zero to 10 million. Everything after that, I just yeah. need to find someone else to do. And that self-awareness is important, but we have to give ourselves permission to really say, this is not for me. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? Two years ago, I bought a dual suspension mountain bike for the first time, and it pushed me to ride trails that I had never been willing to try before. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has exceptional capability that will have you seeing the possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. The Lexus GX comes with available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, best-in-class towing capacity, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. I've seen the new Lexus GX popping up all around my town, and not only does it have the capabilities to take you to new places on and off the road, but it's a great-looking car. The new Lexus GX is ready to raise the bar for you. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hey, Elevate listeners. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify is the partner you need to keep the cash register ringing for your e-commerce business. (coughs) Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers, with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading platforms. I advise a lot of companies in the e-commerce space, and almost all of them have migrated to Shopify. And as a buyer, what I love about buying from Shopify-enabled sites is that they already know who I am, and I don't have to create a new account or enter all my payment info. The ShopPay service makes it faster and easier to buy, which surely helps with conversions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., and Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com elevate, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com elevate now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com elevate. Patrick Lencioni wrote this book, The Motive, which I think is really good on this. And it was insightful for me. I, I always, I'm always curious too on the title of CEO. I actually didn't take it until much later in our company when it was confusing because we had, I was managing director and we had other managing directors. And, you know, and when you see a founder who is founder, president, and CEO, then you know that there's got some <laughs> ego problems. But That's right. the title itself is chief executive officer, right? Which would mean you are the leader of the executives. And to your point earlier, if you are the executive team, like CEO is almost a title you should grow into at, at a certain size, then you should have in a three-person company when when there are not other executives that you are leading. Yeah, that's actually a very good point. I just talked to, literally, I got a call yesterday from somebody um, 
He is the COO and his co-founder is the CEO. She's a CEO. And that's all they have for their company. (laughs) So they've got these big elevated titles. Yeah. Yeah. You could do better at the early stage, right? Yeah. And particularly, you know, if you are the CEO and you're then playing all of the other roles, uh, you are the head of sales, the head of marketing, you know, the head of finance. I mean, I think the right title is kind of president at that stage. And I, 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 you can tell, I think, by people that sort of over title early that that is what is important to them. Yeah. I think that we have a lot of pressure to your point about ego. I just think there's a lot of pressure for founders to want to and have to go all the way. And I think it's a really important moment, several moments, right? Series of moments to step back and wonder, is this the right thing? And is my title the right title? Does it reflect the things that I want to do? Yeah. And and so when in your experience, do you think that the founder starts getting into the danger zone? Is it a number of people? Is it number of revenue? Like what are the, I know there's some tried and true sort of inflection points where it's like the the thing and then the valley of death and then it's like yeah. the next one. Um, right. But w- where do you see when the first change really has to happen? Yeah. I think even from the point of view of number of employees, because you know, metrics are so different in yeah. different businesses. But if I think about number of employees, I think it starts in the 30 range. You know, 30 is where you definitely can't fit everyone in the same conference room. Yeah. So you definitely have to think about, okay, so who is supposed to make the decision here? Because like at eight people, we kind of all decide together. Maybe at 20 people, we all decide together. And then at 30 plus, there is just a change in the way you can no, you can no longer manage everybody as a direct report. You have to start leveling and layering. You have to figure out who makes what decision and establish decision rights. And that's basic. When you then get to be 100 and then you have two products happening, right? Or, or multiple kind of work streams going on. That's when you have to make a shift again, because then you probably have managers managing managers. And you, the CEO, also have to adapt. It's so interesting. I have seen that 30 number in our industry. Companies hit it. It's kind of at the point where it can't just be about the product anymore. It's got to be about the company. And they either either blow through it and double or they kind of crash back under or they'll just five years, they just bounce around that that number because right, you can you could sell, market, you could do all the stuff yourself. I think up until that point, and then right. uh, you have to start breaking those things up. And that's the point where it also requires adding the infrastructure and the costs. Oh yeah. The infrastructure. I mean, also just like systems and, and tools and a consistent way of doing things to, in order just to keep everybody sane, but some people don't like that and they don't mm-hmm. want to do it that way. And then, at, you know, I would also say at 60 to 80, you definitely want to have an HR person who can help you figure out the, the business of managing, right? The tools and structure about managing other people, because that's going to become important too. All right. We're going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsors and we'll be back with Alyssa. This episode is brought to you by Stello Mints. We're living in an era of chronic stress and anxiety, and the pandemic has only made things worse. This has left millions of us trying to figure out how to cope with pressures at work and life. And one of the reasons I love doing the podcast is to share tips to help you manage stress and burnout, and the team at Stello are doing the same. Powered by CBD, Stello Mints are a fast and simple way to feel calmer and clearer throughout your day, even when juggling tasks. Each tin contains 30 mints, and they come in three bold flavors, peppermint, lemon, and matcha. I've been trying the peppermint flavor, and they really taste great. My wife has been enjoying them as well. And now for a limited time, you can get 20% off Stella Mints. Just go to StellaMints.com and use the code ELEVATE. That's S-T-E-L-L-O 
mints.com and use coupon code ELEVATE for 20% off. And we're back with Alyssa Cohn. All right. So there's something really interesting you talked about in your book that, that I actually saw. And that's that a CEO's suggestions are often interpreted as orders. I remember getting feedback on this where being in a meeting and saying, hey, what if we did this or whatever? And then I'd say, well, Bob told me we had to go do this. I'm like, I thought we were having a brainstorming. And I, yeah, it took me a while to realize that people took everything I said literally. You know, How do you coach people to, to manage that? Right. It is true. And the way to manage that, it's several things. It's first of all, to say clearly, you know, I think we're just brainstorming. And here are some ideas. And also, and then you want to be really overly solicitous. I'm sure you guys would know better. You're in the details more. I suspect you have better ideas. And then you also want to give positive reinforcement to people who tell you that's a bad idea or tell you they're not going to do that. It's really helpful to celebrate people publicly for giving you pushback and also for taking your idea and explaining why it's not what we're not going to do or taking your idea and building on it. Thank you for sharing that my idea was crap. I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's good work for you, Bob. <laughs> but you know, one of the analogies I used when I was training someone is is sort of the Disney cast model. You know, which is like when you're underground, you're underground. But like as soon as you're on stage or in the role, I think people start to realize, you know, even not ideas, but but offhanded comments or casual things, like as they have senior roles, they don't realize the weight that those carry. Yeah, that is so true. Which means that even a slight little question, not even a reprimand, but a question falls really heavily on people. And also to your point, you know, your ideas are orders. And so you have to constantly be making sure that people understand that the culture we're trying to build here is where the best idea wins, not where the CEO's idea or the, or the, you know, the executive team's ideas win. And I think that also you can almost make a game out of like in a meeting, you can say, I want to make sure that there's a challenger here. Who's a devil's advocate or challenger and assign that as a role. And then give give that person a lot of like reinforcement again, publicly. And then I know that Ben Horowitz, actually, I heard him on a podcast. So this is a great idea. And I've used it with my clients. When you're in, when you get to be in the executive meeting or other more senior level meetings, the cost of admission is bad news. So it's like, tell me something that I don't want to know. Is there a 2000, 2021 exemption on that rule? Like, I, I <laughs> feel like people need good news in meetings. No, last year we had no demand. And this year we have no supply. Like that's every right. meeting I walk into. Right, right, exactly. Right, but you're trying to encourage dissent and, and exactly yeah. and push back and push back. Right, I like that. If everyone's in love with an idea, then someone try to convince us, talk us out of it. Right, right, and look for disconfirming evidence. Yeah. But I think I really think that the leadership. I mean, when you can bake some of those practices into the culture as rituals or ways ways we do things around here, you're able to lessen that out of size imprint that the leadership or certainly the founder and CEO has on the company. Well, let me ask you something that I've heard a lot of people struggling with these days in in Roseau to the sort of onstage thing. And that is like showing up authentically, vulnerably, not scripted, but in a world of instant cancel culture that people are terrified of. And and so they're very careful with their words and that the wrong words and and they're done. Like that seems like a difficult straddle. Yeah, it is. I think when people say you need to be authentic, 
What they really mean is you need to be authentic with air quotes, right? The idea is that like you need to be my version of authentic. Yeah. So just like you said, a little bit vulnerable, not too vulnerable. Don't make us uncomfortable, but a little vulnerable. And also um, that you like your authentic self should care about other people. I just want to say that I want you to care about other people too, but some people authentically don't care about other people. Let's be honest. And so yeah. what they're really saying is show some humanity. And also you as a leader will do better when you can showcase some chinks in the armor and show a little vulnerability because people are more engaged when they think they can contribute. And if you're all set and you got everything all figured out and you have all the answers, then people get actually shut down because they don't think that they can make a difference. Interesting. Humanity, not authenticity. Humanity, not authenticity. Yeah. You know, cause Kim Scott, talks about this, that people who think they're using radical candor or using the obnoxious aggression, authentic. Right. But well, some of it is not hurting other people, but wanting to express how you really feel about something. But again, it's a world of lots of opinions and it's complicated. I mean, even seen in our organization saying people saying, oh, the, the messaging sounds more more scripted uh, or, you know, the town hall used to be, you know, more off the cuff. And that was a town hall with 20 people, a town right. hall with 300 people. You kind of need to walk in, you know, ha- <laughs> having a little preparation. So it's always, yes. it's always a hard one for me. Well, I think that's right. I, you know, um, there's a CEO I work with and he's trying to, with my coaching and with his own like good sense, trying to be more maybe scripted, maybe more polished, maybe professional. Yeah. The company now is 500 people. Yeah. And the early employees don't like it. They don't like it. And that's something you have to live with too, because you could say, oh, they don't like it. So I shouldn't do it. Or you can say, you know what? We all need to grow here. And as you well know, all the early employees may not make it to the more established, polished company. We have seen that a lot. And I don't think it's because they can't. I think it's because uh, they're just holding on to the past. Um, right. To you know, get a feedback a lot that it's interesting. It's funny as a leader, you want, you want to put everyone, they say that no hecklers in the show. You want to take everyone and, and be like, why don't you come on stage and then see what, see what it looks like from the other side. But we right. get the, hey, we need more information. We don't know about everything, you know, all this stuff. And then we, we want to, okay, let's have this call or this. Oh, I'm overwhelmed. Too much communication. Totally. <laughs> you know, all this so stuff. True. But, but I, I have seen this and I, I've said to a couple of my team when, when and again, as people have been around, they're like, look, there's just a general discomfort with not knowing as much as going on in a almost 300 person company is when it was 40. Yeah. And my answer is I got there <laughs> and I don't mean it that way, <laughs> but like, I don't know anything about, I mean, I know one person, I mean, I think all, everyone at the leadership level had to get comfortable with their not knowing what their teams are doing. And, and, and you have to change to do that, or it doesn't, it just doesn't work. First of all, totally. And also I think that the question I would ask is what are you really uncomfortable with? you middle manager or your employee or even you more senior yeah. manager. And to really, I think that's really help will be helpful is if you and your leadership team, you know, can in smaller environments, one-on-ones or small groups, really get into what is making you uncomfortable. Yeah. Because it usually comes down to, to your point, I don't like change. I like the way it used to be. And so then it's like about let's just sit with what change feels like. Yeah. And how can I help you change? Not like, oh, we need to shower you with more information. I always, yeah. 
come back to the quote. That's the best quote. If you don't like change, you're going to like irrelevance even less. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> From the general, I thought that yeah. was a, a very That's good great. one. Yeah, yeah I, I think it is. Sometimes it's just it's too much change and it's different and and that's hard. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we touched on this before, but you know, thinking about the transition for a founder that's doing too many things, I mean, what are the core responsibilities of a CEO and or I guess that how does that change at some of those delineation points you mentioned earlier? Right. I mean, like the fund fundamentally the CEO is to create the environment for people to do the yeah. best work of their lives and also make sure the company doesn't run out of money. And also context switch all the time because you know they need to figure out when to zoom in and when to zoom out and enable like the ecosystem around them overall. So that's the way I see the role of the CEO and I think that that is sort of the same as you go but it looks different. It looks different. Like um I think if you think about enabling employees to do great work in order to serve in service of the business, but also for them to be fulfilled and happy. And then they want to stay and not leave it akin with the great resignation. So that looks initially like being involved in everything. And I yeah. think later stage employees, that looks like feeling like their career is going somewhere. So feeling like there's career training around here and career progression. And I know um, that my work has meaning and so that's different in different stages in terms of what you, the CEO, has to do. And I, I would say very often it comes down to not what you, the CEO, has to do, but also how do you activate your executive team and your leaders to be out there as more ambassadors and understand their role in uh, dealing with employees. Can we talk about the great resignation for a second? Yes, um, Let's. <laughs> how are you feeling about it? I mean, I get angry when I hear a quote like from monster.com that's saying 90% of people are looking for new jobs because it's like, I mean, the grass isn't that greener. <laughs> like, I think we've been through a very traumatic two years and yeah. it's taken an emotional toll on people and they've been working at places while they had this emotional toll. And so a lot are associating that with work when, when work is not the issue. So I, I'm split. I think that if you thought that, you know, you realize that life's too short to be doing what you're doing and you want to do a different career and this was the impetus, like, that's great. If you're like, I don't want to be in the foxhole with these people, they're terrible and a leader and stuff, that's great. But I think that just like, I need different um, or I'm burnt out. So I just need a new job to me feels very like a product of the helicopter and snowplow parenting, which is if it's difficult, just move on. Yeah. And so I just, I see so many people who just think that the new thing is going to be better Yeah, and it's not, it's just going to be new for like a week. Yeah. Well, you take yourself wherever you go. Right. Yeah. <laughs> or when <laughs> they say, yeah, I'm just looking for, you know, a job that's a little less work and more pay. And, you know, this recruiter who is desperate to build a job has painted this beautiful picture. And by the way, they need me to start in two days. I'm yeah. like, well, how calm do you think it is over there when they, <laughs> when they can't even wait two weeks for you. So, right. so that's one piece of it. And then the piece that I'd really like to get your feedback on is what I've heard from a lot of other leaders is that I think that this is exacerbated generational leadership stuff that they have not had before. They're like, look, I've never had a Gen Y, Gen Z problem before. And now I feel like Gen Xers and the Gen Y, they're all on like totally different pages with this pressure applied. And I've heard multiple people share something to that sentiment. Yeah. Well, um, it's complicated. Um, yeah. There's no question that everybody's talked about this as um, 
the the pandemic as the great accelerator, which I think that's right. I think it's also uh, has shined a big light on practices. So if you had leaders in your organization who were actually bad managers, and let's face it, there are there are many, there are a lot, yeah, a lot, and also bullies or really controlling or focused on status and power. The truth is that that was probably something you were tolerating for a while. And now because of this churn, you're not able to tolerate that anymore. It's just not acceptable. And I think that that is what is causing more of the disruption in the workforce. But I also think it is absolutely true. We have seen Gen X or, or well, it's like what millennials and Gen Z. I think what we have seen is that those generations do feel empowered and they feel they expect to have a voice. They expect to have a voice and they intend to have a voice and they have a voice. And I think that that is a new dynamic in the workplace, which we haven't, we haven't seen before this. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and free. LinkedIn isn't just a job board. It helps you identify and hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Case in point, last year I asked the CEO of a major ski resort how he got his job, and he told me that he saw it on LinkedIn and decided to apply. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. The team at LinkedIn is also constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process easier and quicker. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash practical. That's linkedin.com slash practical to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. The thing that I've talked to a lot of CEOs about this, and they agree. And, and again, I think no one is saying, hey, I mean, some people might. I worked 80 hours when I was 20, and you should do the same, but not in that vein. But I think we're seeing this gig economy mentality come into corporations. And I think the empowerment part of it's great. Like, if they're bad managers or bad policies, and people should speak up in psychological safety. But the sort of self-optimization in the context of a company is going to get a little complicated, like real-time self-optimization, because companies have product goals. You know, someone was telling me that that their company is in in England and they were launching their core product, and you know, they get a hundred weeks of vacation over there, or whatever, and everyone <laughs> wanted to take all of August off, and the product launched in September, and they were having to buy back vacation. They're like, look. Someone's kind of got to care that we're launching our product here. And and yeah. so, look, I think it's great, the empowerment. But I think if we get to where it's every man or woman for himself inside of a company, we're not going to like what we see from a culture standpoint. Well, that's for sure. We're not going to like what we see. But like, what's the solve for that? I really think that people do want their work to have meaning, that they want to work with people they, that they think care about them, that they feel good about. You know, I'll just talk about burnout for a second. People don't get burned out because they're even working too many hours. They get burned out because it just feels like it's endless. They don't see the the results of their work, that their work doesn't have purpose and meaning, and that they're working with people they don't really appreciate that the working style isn't working. And also that there are not systems and tools and processes that help them make their work easier. So all of that together leads to burnout, but also the thing you're talking about, which is apathy. 
And so the truth is that I think there's a lot more that leaders can do inside the workplace to help their people see purpose and recognize that like, there's a mission here we're all on as opposed to, yeah, I'm taking August off. But no, I agree with you in the normal times. But I think again, if you had your three kids and you know homeschooling for twelve months, right? I think your work could have been amazing. <laughs> You're probably still burnt out. <laughs> yeah. So then the question That's is whether point. just switching from one pretty good company to another is, is going to solve that problem. I actually think you know in some cases, if people said I want to take three months off, that would make more sense to me. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. I, I listen, we all know that we're going through this unprecedented time. And I think there's a lot of experiments being done right now, these human yeah. experiment, like unintended experiments. And I think we're going to see a year and five years from now, what really happens. But I think there's a lot of pendulum swinging going on here too. And we'll see yeah. how the pendulum swings back. But I, I agree with you. And, and what I've been telling people and talking about remote work, like there's no going back to 2019. Right. This is probably five to 10 years of certain dynamics accelerated. And and you don't usually put the genie back in the bottle on these things. Right. I think that's right. And also just look and see if you're looking at like what's being incubated now. Early in the pandemic, I talked to a VC who said, we're incubating a company to help with meetings, make meetings better. And I just thought, like no one cares. I care about meetings, but nobody cares about yeah. meetings. But apparently it's a hot space because now there are like eight startups that I know about looking at meetings, the way meetings work. I think that what's going to happen now is innovation around meetings as a whole, the way people gather. Yeah. We need it because we're going to gather in different ways. And also, of course, remote workflow tools. Uh, yeah. I mean, we have always used the traction EOS system. And I think mm-hmm. one of the best things is their thing called the L10 meeting which is at the end of the meeting, you rate it. And if it's yeah. not a eight to 10 regularly, why are you having the meeting? If it's a four, why, why are you having the meeting? Yeah. I mean, that creates some real strong accountability for, you know, I, that was one of the advice I gave people is, is sort of kind of like when you move, there's always a fight usually between the partners around, you know, the stuff you haven't used in four years, like do you throw it out or do you move it, you know, to the new house? I, I right. think as people have gone flexible, don't take the meeting everyone hates and make it remote. Like it's a pretty good time to determine whether you even need that meeting. So true. That's very wise. So you talk a little bit about authentic leadership styles. And I, I have this belief, I think that, you know, new leaders and new managers understandably aren't aren't that good at it. And, and so what's the first thing they do? They they look at best practices of other people they liked and things they do. And I, I felt this about myself. And you build sort of a, a patchwork best practice leadership design. You try that on. And then after a year or two, some of the things feel right and some of the things feel not right at all. So how what does the shift to authentic leadership look like where you are not trying to do the best of other people or the people you've had, but you are trying to really just show up in the way that you are? Well, I think it is definitely taking the best of what you've been given from the past and noticing that how bad the worst was and not doing that, right? Yeah. So, right. There's always an anti thing that people are, are yeah. spending their whole career trying to not... I, I'm never going to make anyone feel like that person made me felt. Exactly. Yeah. I think that's like important. So people kind of bring that. Now, I would add two things to that. First of all, it's really helpful to get some formal training. And if your company provides it, that's great. But there's other ways you can find that out online and get some training on management skills. And then there's the practice. So practice is really hard. You know, part of my book is also like having difficult conversations and and how do you have delicate and difficult conversations and they never feel natural. You can put off having difficult conversations for 20 years and then be uncomfortable having your first one 20 years too late, 
Or yeah. you can lean into practicing and you can know about any skill you're going to take on, whether it's delicate conversations, whether it's um, delegating, whether it's giving feedback, um, whether it's even just clarifying roles and responsibilities. You can do any of that and you can realize that the first few times you do it, it's not going to go well and you're going to feel kind of like all elbows and knees. And then if you keep doing it, you're going to find a style that actually works for you. So to me, the key is to practice and to forgive yourself for feeling like it's not quite in your skill set. I mean, have you found, Bob, I would ask you, have what have you personally evolved as a style, which at first felt really uncomfortable for you, but now is kind of in your, in your sweet spot? So I learned by teaching on this one <laughs> um, because... Yeah. So we actually created a segment for our emerging leaders, a difficult conversations segment um, in which it's a role play game where they're each given a very realistic, like law and order ripped from the headline situation. And they, they sit down to have that check-in with everyone else watching. And one of them is like, thinks that they are need a raise. And the other person is ready to warn them that their job's in jeopardy. And a lot of them are pulled from like real That's stories. Real. Yeah. <laughs> And yeah. this is a play pretend thing. And we watch how people dance around it. <laughs> Don't say the direct thing. Watch the reaction. It's really uncomfortable. And what we noticed is then we do a freeze and everyone gives their feedback and then they do it again. And they don't, you know, they avoid the shit sandwich and, and they go into whatever it is. And not only is it feel like so much more authentic and respectful, the other person like hears it and responds. You actually, even though it's fake, you watch the real you know, reactions on this. And, you know, my, my style generally is I'm founder, like, you know, connect with people and, and elsewhere. And so, you know, the last, after having watched this a bunch and watched coaching and watched that the last time I had to really have a really difficult conversation, I just got on the phone and someone said this and I said, we're about to have a really difficult conversation. And that was just so much easier. Yeah. <laughs> Save so much dancing around it and yeah. not trying to set it up or tee it up. And so that was, I was really impactful watching the session four or five times and, and watching, you know, the reaction to the other person of just getting the straight story rather than the dance around story. Yes. I love that. I love that for so many reasons. I'm a big fan of role playing and yeah what you got the opportunity to do was to go watch other people role-playing and then see their reaction. And yeah. that's a rare opportunity. Everybody should do this right now. Everyone should go set up a scenario where they could do that role-playing just yeah. like you did in their company. Try to sell some, I mean, again, this is a practice telling someone right. that their job's in jeopardy and people couldn't do it. It's practice. Right. Like right. it's not, not even real. Right. <laughs> and, and you can see the dancing around. I've done this session now four times. So I, I may be mixing the things, but I think the first one is the person thinks that they're doing great, wants to know what they need to be promoted. And the other person's kind of like giving them a warning that they have, you know, one quarter uh, left. Right. And so we've now done this four times. And after 10 minutes of the conversation, the first time I look to the 20 people and then we all rotate watching. And I say, how many people in the room think that Alyssa and you're the, you're the ambitious person, you know, you're the one being talking, knows after 10 minutes that her job is on the line. Right. No one raises their hand. And I say, look, this is why this happens. I hear this all the time. Someone says, I had the check-in with Alyssa, you know, you know, totally. we talked about it. And then they say, I, and I gave Alyssa her performance room plan and she was shocked and angry. Like, how is she shocked and angry? You said you talked to her about it. Exactly. And so I'm like, oh, I, I get it now. Yes. <laughs> now I, yeah. Yes. It's so helpful. But uh, Bob, I want to add something else. 
people won't even have the difficult conversation when it's not like your job's on the line. Yeah. So I worked with a CFO one time and he was talking about his employee and she, you know, wouldn't do, wouldn't take ownership and was late on things and didn't do, like speak in meetings or whatever. And I said, well, have you given her the feedback? Oh no, no, I couldn't give her the feedback because, you know, she'll be too upset. By the way, he was not going to fire her. She was a good employee, but he, these things were really problems, but no, she'll be too upset. She'll cry. I was like, okay, well, I understand that you're compassionate, but at the same time, you're like robbing her of the opportunity to really know what's going yeah. on and also improve. So he took my advice. We role-played it. He went and talked to her and she cried. She did cry. And then the next day she came back to him and said, I thought about what you said. It is difficult for me to think about how to improve these things, but I really appreciate you bringing all this up to me and helping me think about it. I wish somebody had brought this up to me 15 years ago. Yeah, it's only a sample size of, of four cycles through this, but I will tell you that what, what's most interesting when the group reflects on through this exercise is because the emotions are almost real, is that when the dancing around and the whole thing's going on, the other like the other person feels it and it feels awkward. Right. And when they just tell them the truth and are direct, it's actually more comfortable. Totally. <laughs> to it's it's paradoxical. Right. Yeah. It's so true. Yeah. All right. So last question for you. Um, yeah. What is this is multivariant. So it could okay. be personal or professional or single okay. or repeated. What is a personal or professional mistake that you made that you've learned the most from? Uh, um, so many, so many, so many mistakes. I'm going to talk about this book because I'm so happy because I think this is an absence. The mistake that I made was making such a big deal out of it that in my mind's eye, really, I could have written this five years ago and I didn't because I had so much um, negative chatter in my head about it. Imposter syndrome. Imposter syndrome yeah. and criticism and, and you know, sort of internal critics. And I would try and fail and try and fail. And I would make that mean you can't do it. And what I learned from it in going through the process and coming out the other end. And once I decided I was going to write the book, once I kind of got out of my own way and decided I was going to write it, I'm not going to say it was easy, but it was super clear. And it was, it, so in that sense, it was easy. It took a lot of work. It took my butt in the chair and it took, you know, time and energy, but it was easy because I knew this is what I was going to do. And the lesson for me and for everybody is that your identity is what's getting in the way of things that you can't do. So look inside and look at your identity and what you're telling yourself and find ways to upgrade that. And that will help you upgrade the things that you're able to do. Very good advice. So where can people learn more about your work, find the book? Where should they go? Well, they can definitely go to Amazon to find the book from startup to grown up, but they can also come to my website, alyssacohn.com slash scripts to help give you more scripts, five specific scripts for delicate or difficult conversations. Ooh, I like that. Yeah. And so it's a downloadable tool that you can take and use today. So alyssacohn.com slash scripts. We all need help with those conversations. You could probably use it for family and friends uh, <laughs> conversations <laughs> as well. True. All right. Well, listen, thank you for joining us and congrats on the book and wish you the best of luck with it. Thank you so much for having me today. All right. To our listeners, thanks for tuning in to the Elevate podcast today. We'll include links to Alyssa and her new book, From Startup to Grown Up, on the detailed episode page at robertglazer.com. As always, if you enjoyed today's episode or the Elevate podcast in general, I'd really appreciate it if you could leave us a review or a rating because it helps new users discover the show. Super easy. If you're an Apple podcast, click on the library icon, Elevate podcast, and then scroll down to leave a rating or review. 
Thanks again for your support. Until next time, keep elevating. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join podcast royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.